Well, we're going to be stepping away from the gospel of uh, Mark for a time and moving uh, through 2 Timothy. So if you would, would you stand as an expression of our uh, recognition that this is the inspired, inerrant, uh, authoritative word of God. Father, be pleased uh, to grant your blessing. Add it to uh, your word, to both the reading of it and give grace as it's preached. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words, that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. And may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiophorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Please take your seats. Well, imagine that you are very ill and you only have a few weeks to live. Your insurance has run out and so you're confined at home. And further imagine that what you are dying from is highly contagious. And so many of your dear friends are actually afraid to come and see you. How would you respond? What 
would be important for you to do with what time you had left. As Paul writes this letter, he's in a very parallel situation. It's AD 64, and he's in prison once again. It's his second imprisonment in uh, Rome. Uh, he was uh, probably uh, traveling for the two years in between his imprisonments. And uh, in that time, uh, Nero has uh, uh, reached a place where he's intent on actively persecuting uh, Christians. He views them as a danger uh, to Rome's power and stability. And so Paul, among others, are viewed the way we might uh, view an insurrectionist or, or a terrorist. Um, and Paul, at the end of this letter, expresses his sense of what's about to happen to him when he writes, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. He anticipates uh, that his ministry is ending, that he will die. And his friends have abandoned him because it is not safe to associate with someone who's the enemy of the Roman Empire. The early church historian Eusebius uh, reports that Paul was uh, uh, condemned to death by beheading and slain on the Ostian Way about three miles outside of Rome. And tradition has it that Peter himself was executed at the same time. Last words are lasting words. Paul's last words are lasting words, and they're addressed to Timothy, a man whom he thought of as his son. For whom he had a very, very deep affection. Uh, Paul desires uh, that Timothy come and be with him. That's his appeal at the end of this letter, just as we would want some of those most dear to be with us as death approached. He writes about what's so dear to his heart the gospel of God's grace. Paul is passing the torch uh, to Timothy, and he speaks to Timothy in this letter about what he needs to be steadfast now, and courageous in the face of the challenges and oppositions that are coming. Uh, Paul summons him to loyalty, uh, loyalty uh, to the gospel, loyalty to the gospel that was entrusted to him, as a child, and uh, loyalty uh, to Christ and what the gospel uh, requires, what it demands. And uh, Paul, as he writes here, will both speak of duties and divine resources uh, that uh, God has granted to make this possible. Now, many of you have probably read this letter before, and you may very well look at it as a letter from a pastor to another pastor. And that, of course, is a perfectly valid way to read this letter. But it's more than that. It is an agenda uh, for the church as we face an increasingly difficult context for the gospel. And it has special bearing for you as you transition from one pastor to another which is my very uh, uh, direct way of saying that's why we're here and not in Mark uh, for a while. The priorities that are here should be uppermost in your minds as you assess and call a pastor. 
Now, Paul begins to Timothy, my beloved child. I thank God as I remember your tears and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Can you feel it? They're just giving, he's giving Timothy a hug. It's, it's, there's just this warm embrace in these uh, words. Paul's affection uh, for Timothy uh, flows out of a deep emotional bond. And that bond had been forged over 15 years. Paul recruited Timothy uh, in his hometown, Lystra. And he would travel with Paul on the second and third missionary journeys. Paul would send him as his personal representative uh, to Thessalonica and Corinth. Timothy would be with Paul as he travels uh, to Jerusalem, and he would also be with Paul for the first imprisonment. In fact, if you look at the letters of Philippi and Colossae, you'll see that he is a co-author of those uh, letters. And uh, Paul's letters just attest to his high regard uh, for him. Paul writes in various places that he is a beloved and faithful child in the Lord, that he's a trusted fellow worker. He even pins these words, I have no one like him. Timothy has been entrusted in the past with great uh, responsibilities. Paul left him in Ephesus as his personal emissary uh, to straighten out the influence of, of false teaching in that church and, and to get that church back on uh, to course. And now as Paul faces martyrdom, he is uh, entrusting to Timothy the very gospel which was entrusted to him. He is to be its torchbearer. He is to protect and preserve its precious life-giving truth. However, humanly speaking, uh, well, Timothy's an unlikely candidate uh, for all of this uh, responsibility in this final choice. He's young. He's in his mid-30s. Uh, he's prone uh, to illness. He doesn't have a forceful personality. Uh, Paul, at times, uh, uses words to describe him and address him uh, as a man who is timid by temperament. In other words, he's not the kind of person uh, that people normally think of as a strong uh, leader or a natural leader. And yet God has prepared him. And Paul urges him uh, to think about and be loyal to the gospel heritage that he has. The gospel has been given to him in his home as a child. And he says to Timothy, don't betray this. Be loyal uh, to what's been entrusted to you as a child. The rich spiritual heritage that you've received. He writes, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. That's Paul writing about himself. He doesn't say, I was once a Jew and now I'm a Christian. Uh, he doesn't say, I was formerly a Pharisee, but I have nothing to do with those people uh, anymore. No, in the very last words, he speaks to the Sanhedrin. He stands up and says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He doesn't distance himself uh, from his spiritual uh, heritage. He sees the coming of Christ and Christianity as the fulfillment of all that was anticipated in the Old Testament and actually an expression of the deepest aspirations of the Judaism in which he was raised. And so he can say, I live with a clear conscience. There's not distance. He doesn't, as we might say, deconstruct Judaism. He sees it as a rich treasure. And he says, likewise, Timothy, 
You have had Christ followers in your life from the very beginning, women of true faith in your grandmother and your mother. Uh, And he says later in this letter, he says, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, meaning the Old Testament. These women, in other words, instructed Timothy uh, uh, from the Old Testament in the realities of the gospel and the wisdom of God's uh, plan of salvation. These are his inheritance. These were women of sincere faith. They made the gospel attractive. And um, this is one of Timothy's great resources to stand under the pressures that are coming. Now, Mothers, and you who are mothers, you have a unique ability to influence uh, the, the the rising generations. A mother's sincere faith is a powerful inducement uh, for her children to persevere. The influence comes not from a performance-based, perfect parenting. No, it comes from a sincere faith that arises out of personal relationship with Christ that's been nurtured and is being nurtured in scripture and prayer and in public worship and deep uh, fellowship. These uh, habits of the heart uh, that produce Christ-likeness. And many mothers actually are very worried about their failures as a mom. Uh, that, and how they've impacted their children. But the greatest gift you can give your children is not uh, perfect parenting, but it's the model of your rich relationship with Jesus Christ. Of course, dads play a role uh, too, and, and they might not be mentioned here because Timothy's dad was Jewish, and we don't know if he came uh, to Christ. But one of the greatest gifts that a husband and wife can give to their children is a Christ-centered marriage. That's of incalculable value to a child. So parents, I urge you to be renewed in your determination to pass the gospel down to your children, especially in the years when they're under your roof both in those formal ways that you might in reading the scripture and having uh, prayer together and, and uh, participating in worship together, but also, of course, in those uh, casual uh, moments that arise when life is lived close uh, together. Your life example has enormous power, far more than anything else that touches the life of your child. I know that's true uh, for Nancy. Her mom and dad were, were pillars of faith. They weren't perfect parents, but they were godly people. And their godly influence extended not just to Nancy, uh, but to me and our uh, children as uh, well. And I myself had a godly praying grandmother uh, who only I found out about really after I came to know uh, Christ. And You children, you students that are here, uh, embrace, don't resist uh, this treasure that's being offered uh, to you. Grow in grace. Uh, Don't turn your back on it and betray it. Then Paul goes on and he adds uh, these words. He says, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And Paul's undoubtedly referring to some very specific moment, perhaps uh, when Timothy was ordained or uh, prayed over to be equipped for uh, the service that he produced. But he ties it so closely uh, in the next line to the gift of the Holy Spirit that it may very well be both that are in view. Timothy's ability to stand courageously for the gospel will uh, happen as he draws on these divine uh, resources. Timothy's personal discipline is necessary if he's to develop all of the gifts, both natural and spiritual, that he's been given. And he's to kindle these gifts uh, the way you might uh, a fire uh, so that it flames up. They're to be kept ablaze by the exercise of them and his, and his reliance on God to refresh them, to renew them. And, and note very carefully what Paul writes next. He says, the spirit given to all of us, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. These words uh, certainly apply to all of us. The Spirit is one of our greatest resources as we live as Christ followers and as a church as we seek to minister uh, to the gospel uh, to those around us in a world that's really hostile uh, uh, and where the, the world and the devil and the flesh make war against us. The Spirit's power enables us to be steadfast, to remain loyal uh, to the gospel, uh, to give a way to the spirit of the age. And, and the Spirit's gift of love uh, enables us to love not only people who are, well, that we find unlovely in the church, but to love those outside uh, the church, those who are far from God and whose values uh, we find our, ourselves uh, in conflict uh, with. You see, love does not seek to use power uh, to force people to do something. Uh, love appreciates and accepts uh, people, and that creates the opportunity uh, to share with them the gospel. And the, as the Spirit grows in us self-control, we can endure in our sufferings for the gospel and not return evil for evil. Spirit-dependent ministry is what every church needs. Every pastor should seek that uh, in their ministry if they're going to endure uh, in the ministry of the gospel and uh, for uh, it to bear rich fruit. Now, Paul urges Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel or himself. Why? Well, because there's always been a stigma uh, if you've spent time in jail. It's hard to get rid of that stigma. And Paul summons Timothy to personal loyalty. You know, don't be ashamed of me, be loyal to me. Uh, loyalty to Paul is loyalty to what claims Paul's loyalty. Uh, to Christ, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, verse 8, to the gospel, verse 9, to the apostolic pattern of sound teaching in verse 13, and to the good deposit entrusted to you, verse 14. Personal loyalty to Paul is loyalty to Christ and the gospel. And Paul summarizes the gospel very briefly here. 
He says it's the power by which God calls and saves and brings us to life and immortality. The gospel is not what we do to be right with God, but what God has done in Christ. It is a summons to live a life that pleases him, that's holy. The gospel's good news, and it's centered on Christ. There is no good news without Jesus uh, Christ. Christ should be preeminent uh, in the life of the church and the life of the Christian. You know, Paul, it's so preeminent for Paul. He says, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him uh, crucified. And Timothy is summoned to guard this gospel. Loyalty to the gospel means for Timothy that he's going to suffer as Paul has suffered. Why is suffering so closely linked to the gospel? What is it about the gospel uh, which men hate and oppose on account of which that those who proclaim it uh, must suffer? Well, the short answer is this, that God saves sinners uh, by his own purpose and grace and not by their good deeds. It's because the freeness of grace is offensive because we hate to admit the gravity of our sin and our guilt. Gospel ministry by its very nature in announcing grace and forgiveness exposes the darkness in it. It peels back layer after layer after layer of idolatry and sin. This is in the life of the church. Often the opposition a pastor experiences is in the congregation uh, that he serves because, well, he's touched some idol, he's hit some uh, nerve, he's troubled uh, somebody, and they, they become very, very angry, and they want to drive that person out. The history of the church is replete with men who suffered, with congregations who wanted nothing more than for them to leave. And the, when the gospel's preached as it ought to be preached, it It exposes the ways that we want to close our ears to make ourselves exceptions uh, to its uh, summons, to just shut our eyes uh, to what still remains of sin in our lives. And so the cross is offensive. And the cross is deeply connected to the holiness of God and his expectations of us. The cross will only matter to you when you see how big your sin is. The bigger sinner you see that you are, the bigger the cross becomes for you if you're rightly related to the cross. And so faithful proclamation is always going to wound as it heals. It's going to expose as it cleanses. It's uh, going to break, and it's also going to mend. And here we live in a day, and there's always been this temptation for pastors to take these sharp edges away uh, from the gospel, uh, to mute uh, the reality of sin. Uh, some, not all, who do that give in to amusement, uh, even entertainment, uh, or just simply their sermons are composed of how-to advice. And it's really just dressing a deep wound, just covering a bandage over something that needs surgery. Instead of preaching Christ and his cross, which alone can cure us. No man and no church can proclaim the gospel and not experience opposition. Now the primary way to guard the gospel is for it to be the center of every aspect of the life of the church. 
for every sermon, every Sunday school, every gathering, to be centered on the gospel, to be living out in some way its implications. And you can tell how the gospel uh, uh, looks like when it's central in the life of the church. Uh, Paul says this in uh, the first letter to Timothy. He says, Believers' lives will be characterized by love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What is it that displaces the gospel and pushes it out of center? Well, I suppose many answers could be given to this, but there's one I want to talk about for a few moments. And I do it at the risk of perhaps offending some of you. But I'm sure you'll agree with me, America is decadent. Uh, our, uh, the life of our uh, nation is, one of its leading traits is decadency. It's, it's the product of both wealth and success. And so it's not just that we seek comfort, it's that we do it to excess. And, and the way we do this, well, there are many ways that we do it, but one of them connects to something Paul mentions in both of these letters uh, that displace the gospel, and it is controversies. It's about arguing about words that generate quarrels. Now, there are moral issues that the church must address and must not be silent about. Um, Whether it's human sexuality, which is an especially intense focus uh, right now, or uh, physical and sexual abuse, which the church has failed to address adequately within itself, uh, whether it's abortion or racism or injustice. All of these issues, um, most churches, including our own, Uh, denomination have written papers to guide us to speak to these issues. These are all important issues that the Bible speaks to. But what I'm talking about here is how much the church has gotten to where it just responds to the news cycle. And the, the, the church, many churches especially, just take fascination with the controversial stories that uh, reflect poorly on people whose theology or political uh, views are very different than our own politics has become, for many, many people in America, their religion. It has displaced the place that religion used to have in this uh, nation. And when it becomes the central or energizing force in the life of a church or in the life of a Christian, the gospel's been displaced. The gospel should energize us. There's a second way that this manifests itself, and it manifests itself especially in churches that put high value on uh, doctrine, on the teaching of Scripture, as we should. But you see what it's produced, this love of controversy, is that we have energetic policing of other parts of the body of Christ. Uh, uh, other theological traditions, even uh, the, the strands uh, within our own, the people that are closest to us. We spend inordinate uh, energy uh, on that instead of just accepting that these substantive differences will always remain and that these differences are uh, healthy. And you see, this level of controversy just is especially present for us because of the internet. Social media and the blogosphere just, well, they inflame people as if you could have a good theological uh, nuanced discussion 
on Twitter or in a Facebook post. It can't be done. You can't, you can't have the kinds of conversations where you really understand what people mean and how they're using these words and what concerns cause them to fray things this way and what part of scripture uh, they especially are emphasizing. You just can't uh, do it. And, and the result is, is that, well, uh, what grows in people's lives is rancor, resentment, and exhaustion and a kind of lovelessness, where the gospel should produce deep lovelessness. It's a ministry that Paul characterizes as actually ruining uh, people. And it leads to neglect, really, of the things that are so important. Not just the gospel, but deep discipleship. One of the lessons in the last 10 years, and especially uh, since the pandemic, is just how shallow our discipleship has uh, been. That Maybe 10%, I don't know for sure, but 10% of the people who used to come to church regularly before the pandemic have stopped, not because of their health, but because they got out of the habit. What was sustaining their participation in corporate worship was it was a habit for them. It wasn't that they had this deep uh, value, that they recognized that it was central to what it means to be a Christian, to worship with with others. And it's shown in the fact that... um, for at least a decade now, maybe two, that uh, a large percentage of Christian children growing up in the church do not embrace uh, the traditional teaching about sexuality. In fact, it makes no sense uh, to them whatsoever. Francis Schaeffer said this uh, well. Uh, uh, To do the Lord's work, we must do it in the Lord's uh, way, not in the world's way. And this means we have to develop different habits. Um, It it means that character matters. We live in a culture of celebrity, and we're often drawn to people who have personalities that we might describe as as having charisma. They're very, very attractive, but what counts is character. And uh, having a deep renewal and commitment uh, to uh, discipleship means finding and forging new practices that connect deeply with people in the 21st century. Because simply passively listening to sermons has not produced the kind of disciples we would hope. So let me sum up. Just land this here. Uh, It's not just the search committee who's going to call a pastor. You as a congregation are going to call a pastor. And you're going to select a pastor. Call a man who is passionately loyal to Christ and whose life gives evidence that it's centered on the gospel, who preaches the gospel uh, so that Christ is exalted. That will bear fruit. A man of character, not who loves controversy, a man deeply committed to evangelism and deep discipleship. They are are intricately webbed webbed, uh, uh, joined, wedded, there's the word I'm trying to say, wedded with each other. And um, it's not either or, it's not first and then, it's both and, and it has to be like that. And who is a man who's known for his love, who has deep relationships, who's not afraid to show his affection uh, for people, and who is Evidencing reliance on the resources of the Spirit, not relying just on his uh, gifts, 
but who will stir up those uh, gifts, who will seek to develop them uh, so that they might bring uh, glory to Christ. That's not quite the same thing, though it's not, doesn't exclude this entirely, as getting more advanced degrees. That's not the same thing as stirring up your gifts. It means someone who's committed uh, to working for a lifetime at uh, becoming better as a preacher or better as a teacher or better as a shepherd or better as a leader. Uh, It it requires great energy uh, to do that. Well, may Christ himself guide you. I'm confident that he is and will. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, may you grant that this church in all its future would be known as a place where Christ is lifted up, where the gospel is heard, where disciples are being nurtured into a life of love. Father, strengthen us. We live in a time that seems very hard to us to carry the gospel forth. Encourage us, uh, Lord, and enable us to demonstrate the same loyalties that Paul has summoned Timothy to. For we ask in Christ's name.